Well, good evening, everybody. So good to see you here this evening. We got some folks on vacation still. I'm jealous. We have some folks that are out sick. I'm not so jealous, but we are praying for them and inviting you to turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 15. This is a pivotal chapter in the middle of a wild and powerful book. It's a pivotal chapter. We looked at a really important chunk last week, and there are some issues being addressed and resolved and worked out. Isn't it good news to see a story of people working together in spite of disagreement? Isn't it beautiful to see a group of Christians disagree without disengaging? Isn't it beautiful to see brothers and sisters in Christ disagree without dehumanizing or demonizing? Oh, what would it be like? It would be like Acts chapter 15. And it's a big deal. We got issues in Acts chapter 15. What we spent the most of our time unpacking last week, and if you missed that, it's kind of important, which is weird for a preacher to say about a sermon he preached, but it's more about the content of what was going on. You can find that on our Facebook page as a video. You can find it as audio on our website or on our podcast. But here are the issues we're seeing in Acts chapter 15 on this slide here. Last week, we spent the most time with this first issue. There were some Pharisees that came to Jesus, and the issue was, if you stop circumcising people like the Jews had done for centuries, are they still God's covenant holy people? I mean, we've been doing this for generations. God said it. That settles it, right? The way we put it last week was, I mean, is this still a cheeseburger if you remove the patty? Isn't that kind of the crucial thing? For generations, from before they were even called Israel, men were circumcised, and it reminded them that they were the nation that was blessed to bless all nations. If you remove this vital sign... Is it still God's nation blessed to bless all nations? Underlying this question we looked at last week is this. Really, what must you do to enter God's covenant family? Some churches baptize babies to show their entry point into the church. Well, for centuries, the Jewish people on the eighth day circumcised their young boys to show them that they were marked for a special purpose. You could say that circumcision was the entrance fee, right? It was the membership dues. And someone in our church two weeks ago, before we talked about this, was like, well, hello, what about the women? Well, that's just the way it was. But even the women, you could know that you know that these were different, a different kind of people. They ate different. And the sign of that entry fee, the sign of that member dues, you say, oh, they're living a different way. So if circumcision was the entry fee, the proof of membership was living the law of Moses. Are you with me on this? But now... All these non-Jewish people seem to be entering into God's family, 
but they weren't paying the price. You know what I mean? What we found out last week in this pivotal chapter was that the only entry fee now is faith in Jesus. And if that's the entry fee, and that was part of the law, maybe the evidence of your membership was the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's where we've been, and if some of this is confusing to you, well, go back and listen to last week, but here's a blow-by-blow that'll help us get into the next part of our story. Here's where they landed. Gentile converts. Gentile was a Jewish word for nations, okay? Nations, all the other folks that converted, they don't need to enter God's family through the Jewish door of circumcision or obeying the Torah, the law. You with me so far? Everyone enters through the Jesus door. If you have Acts chapter 15 open, this was where we landed last week on verse 11. Hey, there's only one door to God's family, and it's Jesus. You can leave the scissors at home, men. Just making sure you're awake. Are you with me? Where they landed last week was also this, in this council in Jerusalem. The Mosaic law isn't imposed on Gentiles. Last week, we saw that they said, look, we barely made it. Our parents and grandparents barely made it. Why should these new converts to God's family through the door of Jesus get this heavy burden laid on them too? We see them figuring out in real time that in Jesus, all those laws of the Old Testament were fulfilled and focused. Jesus reoriented the whole thing and said, come follow me. We see this in his ministry. We see this in the passage that Amy read earlier, Romans 10. Paul literally says, Christ is the culmination of the law. But it's hard to take a step into new territory when you've been doing something for generations. So that leads us to this third piece. So now that the Jews and Gentiles are moving in together, now that we're God's family, and you're not exactly stepbrothers, you're brothers. You ain't half-sisters, you're sisters. But what are some house rules? All these communities sprouting up all over the world, what are we going to do? Because you'll remember that Acts, of course, is the story of how the good news of Jesus is on the move to everyone, everywhere. And it's going so fast that they gather together to say, now that we're eating together and rubbing elbows as one family under one roof, what will be some house rules for our new brothers and sisters? You with me in all that? Some of you are thinking, wow, he just did in four minutes what he did in 40 minutes last week. Why am I going to go back and listen to it? That's okay. Fair point. Let's dive into the rest of it. (laughs) Acts chapter 15. Let's start in verse 12. I'm going to read the first half. We're going to talk. And then I'm going to read the last half at the end. Starting in verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders 
God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James, who was Jesus' half-brother and probably the one who wrote the letter called James, he was like a central key figure. So when he stands up, They've heard Paul and Barnabas say what's going on in the field. Now everybody's ears are perked up saying, okay, what's, what's the decision? James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the who. Wow, God is operating outside of our neighborhood. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. What? Can I say that again? Even all the Gentiles who bear my name. Says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. Wait, is the Old Testament talking about how God has planned so long ago to have these nations, these Gentiles, come in and restore David's fallen house? The one who came from David's line is named Jesus. And he's the Jewish king that they're realizing is the king of the whole world. And so they're rebuilding this royal house with bricks that are Jewish and Ethiopian and Asian and African. Hmm. Verse 19. Now this is James talking. It is my judgment, therefore... That we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them. Telling them to, count it with me, four things. Abstain from food polluted by idols. From sexual immorality. From the meat of strangled animals. And from blood. That's eating stuff with blood in it. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. He's saying there's still a bunch of Jewish communities every week and everywhere. Here are four guidelines to help us in our house rules. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You still with me on all this? Let's talk about roommates. How many of you have had a roommate or have a roommate currently? I was expecting most everybody, yes? I want to tell you about my roommate, my senior year of college, on this a day when someone in our community is moving in to the University of North Texas. Yes, shout out to Angel, go mean green. Got me thinking about my college living situation. I was in a dorm, I was in an apartment with three other dudes, and my senior year it whittled down to just one dude, and he and I were off campus in a two-story apartment. Y'all remember the Sycamore Square apartment? It was just me and my buddy. But we were living two different lifestyles. And I don't mean college, as Kelly laughs. I mean that I was a full-time student with a part-time job. And he had a grown-up job. 
He had put the pause button on school and he was working a career. We were living two different lifestyles. I would sleep as late as possible, then I'd get on my bike and I'd ride over to campus and I'd go to class and I'd hang around and eat something and I'd hang around and do another couple classes and then I'd ride back in the middle of the afternoon and crash. Just come in, I'd be making a lot of easy Mac and I'd be living free and easy. Well, the first week of school, I realized that I came home and stepped into a quite different living situation. You see, my roommate with the grown-up job got up super early, dressed all nice, went to work, and because he was the new guy, he had the late lunch. So in the mid-afternoon, he takes a lunch break, and he would crash on the couch to take a nap before he got up again and finished out the day. So just imagine how well it went at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I slam my bike down on the, pa- on the porch, I throw open the door, turn on the light, and start making Easy Mac. I consumed so much Easy Mac, it's crazy. <laughs> then all of a sudden, from the couch, I hear, hey, man, sorry, dude, sorry, won't happen again. Guess what happened again? The same exact thing for a week until finally we say, dude, what's going on? We need to establish these house rules. And so what we realized is that there was nothing in our lease that made us figure it out and get along. But in order to live in a happy habitation and to avoid offending each other or fighting with one another, we needed to learn to rub elbows in such a way that the law or the lease would not impose upon us. But for real life situations, we had to work something out. And we had better do it quickly. This is my silly and crude explanation of what's happening with these four laws that get written down in a letter and in the latter half of this chapter get sent out to all these new communities, all these different apartments with these two different lifestyles, these two roommates under the same roof coming from totally different life experiences, having to learn to live in such a way that avoids offenses. There is nothing in the binding contract that they signed that says you must not eat those spare ribs purchased at the pagan temple downtown. But there's something about living with people that for generations never ate pork and would dare not come within six feet of a pagan temple where these communities that sat down for dinner and lifted a cup to King Jesus better figure out some house rules and not upset their neighbor. If the first half of Acts chapter 15 was realizing that there is no needful circumcision, you don't need to get circumcised to get into God's family, the second half is Now let's live together in such a way that doesn't cause needless offense. Does that make sense? This is what's going on. If you've ever felt stuck, if you've ever wondered how we can come to this agreement, how we can move forward, 
How can we unpack years of tradition and scripture and learn to live together in real time? Understand that God's people get stuck. And Acts 15 is a beautiful, powerful model of how they got unstuck without demonizing, without dehumanizing, and by loving their neighbor as themselves. They're stuck, but Acts gets them unstuck. What happens in Acts 15 is that Peter, Paul, and Barnabas had been out in the field, and Gentiles had been coming to faith. They've dusted for God's fingerprints, and they report back and say, guys, you'll never believe it. They're entered in, and they're proving it by the Holy Spirit, and they're living like Jesus. So then James, the half-brother, remember, stands up, and he doesn't just take their word for it. James connects their story to God's story. Do you remember when we were looking in Acts chapter 15, he quoted and said the prophets agreed to this. Did you see that? Are you still seeing it in your Bible on verse 16? He's quoting the very end of Amos. Amos chapter 9 speaks of how God's people are going to get sent to exile, but he'll rebuild the tent like we just talked about. So what they did was on one hand looked at what was happening in their real life, and dusting for God's fingerprints. And then they went backwards to the scriptures and see how God used to work in other people's lives. And they smushed them together and said, I think God is in this. How they get unstuck is the same way we get unstuck. The first is soaking in God's story. Looking back at Amos is what they did, and looking back to the places like Acts 15, looking back in Jesus' example, we're soaked and steeped in what God has done before us that gives us a precedence for number two, discerning how the Spirit is at work among us now. Do you see what I mean? James says, this sounds a lot like the Bible in Amos 9. And then Paul and Barnabas are saying, listen what God is doing right now in real time. And then they get together in Acts 15 and they kick it around together and process it in community. And they say, even though this feels crazy, even though this feels like we're undoing generations of tradition, this seems like something God is up to. And all of this is possible because of how they viewed the Bible. And I think that this is super important for us today as God's people trying to keep moving as the good news goes to everyone everywhere. How did they see the Bible? I think the early church movement firstly sees the Bible as a record of humanity interacting with divinity. And they're discerning God's work in our world. The Old Testament, what Christians call the Old Testament, is a record of God introducing himself to these people, freeing them, naming them, 
showing them how to live. And it sounds the way it does because God let his kids, these people, tell the tale. It's a record of humanity grasping in real time like Paul and Barnabas saying, this feels like God. And they write it down. And they discern the way that God wants them to live. And it comes out not as a textbook, but as a story. So the second thing there on your screen to understand is that the Bible is a story of that interaction that unfolds through many centuries, authors, and genres. I think it would help so many Christians today to understand that the Bible is not some textbook or rule book that you can read Leviticus the same way you read the Gospel of Matthew. They are different genres written to different people in vastly different times. Are they both spoken, inspired, breathed out by God? Shake your head, yes. But are they totally different? Yes. And to prove the point, Jesus in Matthew quotes Leviticus and says, you heard it say in Leviticus, but I say to you. And he moves Leviticus forward. It ain't enough to just say eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. No, no, no. I say to you, love your enemy and bless those who persecute you. I say, turn the other cheek. Maybe it's helpful to understand the Bible as a story that unfolds like your sleeping bag at a campsite. It starts like this, and everything is there contained. But along the way, you've got to roll it out and fold it out, and it goes on. Maybe it's better to understand it as this unfolding bag or quilt instead of this once-for-all, everything's the same, read it, that settles it. Well, wait. The Bible itself progresses and unfolds and critiques itself. There's something about how you needed to not eat pork, but now Jesus says all foods are clean. It's unfolding. It's moving. And there's so much confusion when we look back at the inspired words for a certain people at a certain time at a certain place. Jesus in John chapter 6 will say, you guys search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But the scriptures are pointing to me. It's Jesus who holds eternal life. That's why we're called Christians, not Biblians. We know Jesus because we know the Bible, soaked in the story, steeped in the story. We know to recognize the fingerprints of God because like James, we can look back in Amos and say, yeah, he promised this, he's done this. We need the Bible, but we need Jesus, which is why this third idea is so crucial. This story was always headed toward a definitive point. The sleeping bag gets rolled out, and the end game is the establishing of God's kingdom on earth through His Son, Jesus. Hang with me as I connect a couple threads. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make a great nation of you through your nation, 
All nations will be blessed. And to remind you, I'm going to mark you with the thing that helps make nations. So you remember. And then you're going to mark every one of your sons that I'm promising with the same sign to remind them you're a special nation to go bless all nations. So then all the way in Acts chapter 4, 5, 6, when the good news of Jesus who's come, he's God's reigning Lord, he's the king, and all of a sudden they're inviting all people into it, and now they say, whoa, all nations are being blessed through this king that came through our people. They were soaked in the story, they were discerning what the Spirit of God was doing, And they're processing in real time in the real community saying, is this thing that in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant of the law written on our hearts? Is this that in Amos 9 when God's rebuilding David's tent and all the nations are going to come in? Write down Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3. And if you're very confused by what I'm saying or just plain hot and bored, go ahead and read it. It's powerful. Paul will flesh out this theology and say, look, you once were far off, but now God's brought you into the house. And here's the household rules. Let's live in love together. And this is how they discerned it. It was always headed toward Jesus. He's building up one house in Jesus. Let me illustrate this further with an illustration I've used, but it's been a minute and I want to say it again because I think it'll be helpful. It's the image of a crosswalk. What's going on in Leviticus and Exodus as God calls the people is they're standing on one side of the street. And it's as if I'm standing on one side of the street with my two daughters, Emma and Nora, and I say, hey, don't walk. And they say, okay, well, we got to get to the other side. And I say, I know, but don't walk. Why am I saying don't walk? Because there's cars coming, because the sign has not yet appeared, because I know something that they don't. It's not time to walk. But every time, Emma and Nora are sitting there saying, but we got to go, let's go. And I say, we will, we will. God frees the people, gives them these laws, and he's saying, don't walk, don't walk, don't walk. In the Old Testament, He says, don't walk 613 times. That's the Mosaic law. And they say, okay. Because at this moment, it's not time to do anything other than listen to this. Do you understand? Yet, Jesus comes, and it's as if the light changes. And that little guy shows up, and all of a sudden, people begin to look over and see This figure. And they're soaked in the story and all the expectations and all the promises. And they say, this looks like somebody. This looks like something I should follow. And then Jesus says, all right, walk. Come follow me. Love your neighbor as yourself. Turn the other cheek. Forgive. Sit and give generously. To those in need. Follow me and repent. 
and believe the good news. All of a sudden, we see that Jesus is reorienting all of the walk and don't walk commands around relationship of following him. So now back to our crosswalk. When I'm standing there with Emma and Nora, and all of a sudden, the light turns, the man appears, and I tell them, walk. Am I contradicting myself? When I said don't walk a few minutes ago, and now I'm saying walk, am I contradicting myself? No. There's something about this man that's inviting me to walk that makes sense of all the time we spent here waiting and listening and paying attention. But now the man has appeared and it's time to walk. I'm not contradicting myself. I'm simply recognizing the time. And now it's time to walk. So what's happening in Acts 15 and why it's so important and why I'm making such a big deal of this same kind of point is because the rest of the New Testament is figuring out what it looks like to walk with people who had only heard don't walk for six thousand years but if we can't walk together you and I would not be sitting here today in 2022 and if we can't figure out how to get unstuck and follow the man who's moving and walking and calling us beyond ourselves and beyond our neighborhood in five years or 50 years the people behind us won't be walking either if we can't sort out what the Spirit of God is doing, if we're not steeped in what Jesus has taught, if we're not able to walk forward, the people that come after us will be damaged by that witness. We're here because they walked. And the invitation for us is to keep walking just as they did. So in Acts 15, they say, okay, we had no problem with preaching to everyone everywhere. Well, now we have, and they're here. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter said, now we can eat with anybody. He said, okay, that's kind of weird, but we have no problem eating with them. But now what's going on is, okay, but as we keep walking, our reputation is on the line. So here's the bottom line. Avoid some offensive obstacles to the Jews coming to Jesus. Steer clear of the things associated with that Gentile pagan temple down there on Main Street. You follow me? The reason why we have these four things that get sent in a letter and circulated to all those churches is because those churches over there are walking right next to some roommates who are going to be pretty put out if you serve them some of that blood sausage. You with me? So if we're going to walk together, let's not cause offense. And they got there from soaking in the story of what God had done before, discerning the spirit of what God is doing now, and processing together in community. What practices should you lean into associated with these three? 
maybe you have this sense that you're stuck and you search and you search and you just don't know that special Bible verse for this special situation about your special job or this special relationship. But the reason I love this phrase, soaking in the story, and maybe I could change it to help you to steep in the story, is if you are a mug of hot water, the scripture is that bag of tea that goes in, and the longer it sits, the more it permeates your being, and the more you can really answer the question, what would Jesus do? Because you're so steeped in his way, in his words, and his example. In the 90s, I walked around with that Jesus WWJD, and I'm afraid that it was just my best guess because I wasn't exactly steeped in the story. So maybe the practice for you is to be serious about reading a passage of the Gospels. Good news, next week I'm going to bring you a guide that I'll be using and I'll be reading with a prayer and a daily scripture reading for the month of September. And you can join me in that. Maybe for some of you, you feel stuck and is trying to discern what the Spirit of God is doing in the present moment. Maybe you need to sit still because you've been talk, talk, talking. And what if you would just breathe deeply and set a timer on your phone for five minutes every day this week to sit, to breathe deeply, and to be present to God's presence, to discern and listen and hush, and maybe you'll receive some clarity. And three, maybe the practice associated like we see in this council is getting together and leaning in and kicking the tires and listening to the wisdom in your brothers and sisters. Notice they kept silence and they listened to Paul and Barnabas. Then they listened to James. And for sake of time, I won't read the last half, but I do want to draw your attention to verse 28. Verse 28 of Acts chapter 15 has this beautiful phrase hidden within it. Within this letter, they send to the Gentiles, telling them what to abstain from. They write this. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I'll close with a couple stories that we can illustrate from Acts chapter 15, of getting unstuck and walking together. This morning at the closed closet, I was talking to somebody who was really feeling stuck, and they were looking for a school for a kid in their life. And this person said, I was literally praying that God would just point to one. And I said, well, did he? He said, no. I said, well, what'd you expect? You're just driving down 78 and there's the Google map like arrow or the Waze guy pointing to this. I didn't say this, but they knew that that's crazy. That's not how God works, is it? They said, God, would you just point to it? Well, as this person carried on with the story, I realized that the best guess they got was, well, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. At some point, Soaking in the story, sitting with the Spirit, leaning in and talking with the community. They didn't have, thus saith the Lord from heaven, but they had this sense of the next step as they walked. 
It can be something as small as choosing a school, or it can be something as big as what Pastor Bud experienced in the life-altering decision of whether or not to proceed with a double lung transplant in his mid-60s after a two-decades-plus-long battle with a disease that doctors said only left him with a couple years if he didn't do anything. Lord willing, in a week or two, but I know you're listening, he said he's going to give us a video talking more about this story, talking more about how this community helped him as he processed, as he talked with his wife, as he talked with uh, those of us within the church, as he listened to his doctors, and he was sitting there with this choice of carry on for not that long, or take a big step and be open to this transplant and a 50-50 shot of even making it off the table if he was even able to get a pair of lungs. That is exactly the kind of stuckness that you need God to point to. And so speaking with Bud, and he'll elaborate on this, he basically said, God, do you have this? I'm reading my Bible every day, I'm talking to my wife, I'm sitting in stillness, and I'm praying, and I'm just trying to make sense of walk or don't walk. And he said there was a moment that he sensed being wrapped in God's arms. And I said, what did you think? What did you feel? What was the answer? And he said, I didn't have an answer. I just had a sense that God's got this. He said, if I die, I would see him face to face. If I live, then I'd live for him. And there's something about, in a place of stuckness, in a pivotal moment in Acts 15, or whether or not to get a double lung transplant, that God is inviting us to process and partner in such a way that develops trust. Because Acts 15 was the perfect moment to just turn off our thinking and our feeling and let somebody tell us, God, give us a new law. But instead, what God did through the spirit, through the story, through the community was give us a sense that it seems good to us in the Holy Spirit to trust you and work through it in process and partnership. Maybe Bud teaches us, along with James, Barnabas, and Paul, that it's less about downloading information or pointing to a map or saying, take this job. And maybe it's less about that and more about discerning. Maybe it's less about perfection. Here's four things. If you do this, you will do well. That's what the end of Acts says. And it's more about progression and learning how to live amongst each other. And to foster a community that's welcome and not offensive to those who are new to the faith. Later, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 8, hey, go ahead and eat stuff polluted by idols. I mean, what are idols anyway? If you don't think the scripture is an unfolding story for a certain time or for a certain place or for a certain people, you're not reading it right. There's something that happens in between Acts 15 where the whole church says, don't eat stuff sacrificed to idols. And then later in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul's like, I mean, you can eat it. But if it offends your brother, don't. 
We need to discern. We need to see it's not about perfection. It's about progression. We need to see, and this is your final takeaway, what it means to pay attention to God and respond appropriately. What would your week look like if you woke up tomorrow and said, I'm paying attention. Show me the way to go. What would it look like in your work on Monday to pay attention to your neighbor and respond appropriately? What would it look like on Tuesday to pay attention to that family member and not to react, but to respond in the grace and goodness of God? Acts 15 is a big picture model of what it looks like to soak in the story, to listen and discern in the spirit, and to lean in community. And it may not be as pivotal as the direction of the church for the next 2,000 years, but in your life with God now, would you pay attention and respond appropriately? Because he's calling you to walk, and may he give you the courage to take the next step. God, we're grateful for this time and these brothers and sisters in the book of Acts that were listening to you and walking forward in spite of uncertainty. For one thing we can be certain of, you will never leave us nor forsake us, and you have hidden your word in our hearts. So Jesus, would you abide in us as we abide in you to move through our week aware of your presence and aligned with your way. Through Christ Jesus, we ask. Amen. As you go from here into the coming week, may God open your mind to his presence so that you may truly come to know him. May he open the eyes of your heart so that you can experience the hope he offers to all who follow him. And may you come to understand the full extent of God's power at work in your life. The very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God. Christ goes ahead of you. Christ will not forsake you. Christ is with you now and always. Go in peace.